this isn't the real Caesar's Palace, is it? What do you mean? Did Caesar live here? Um, no. I don't think so. I went to Vegas last weekend. Pretty crazy. Vegas, baby, Vegas! Gentlemen, welcome to Las Vegas. Why don't you give me half the money you were gonna bet? Then we'll go out back, I'll kick you in the nuts, and we'll call it a day. Some guys just can't handle Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 46 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. My name is Jeff, and I'll be your tour guide for this podcast journey to what I like to think of as the best city on the planet, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. To start, I want to thank my guest from the last episode of the show, my good friend, Mark Chinook, the host and creator of Monday's Dark. Mark was kind enough to find time in his insane schedule to sit and chat with me during the preparations for the Monday's Dark 6th anniversary celebration, marking $1 million raised for local Las Vegas charities. If you haven't listened to the episode as of yet, jump into the archives wherever you get your podcasts and search out episode number 45. Also, a big thanks to everyone who's taken the time to complete the audience survey. Lots of amazing feedback coming in on the podcast, but I'm always looking for more. If you've got opinions on the show, please share them with me by clicking the audience survey link on the website at jeffdoesvegas.com. All right, let's get things going. When people think of burlesque, they usually think of scantily clad or perhaps even topless or naked women on stage, titillating and teasing crowds with their seductive dance moves. But there's way more to it than that, as you're about to learn. My guest for this episode of the show is Dustin Wax, the executive director of one of the most unique attractions in Las Vegas, the Burlesque Hall of Fame Museum, which, by the way, is the only burlesque museum in the world. Dustin was kind enough to connect and chat with me about the history, mission, and vision of the Burlesque Hall of Fame Museum, as well as their annual Burlesque Hall of Fame weekend and Miss Exotic World pageant. We also talked about the history of burlesque, not just in Las Vegas, but all over the world. He educated me on the evolution of burlesque into stripping and exotic dancing. We talked about the resurgence of burlesque over the last decade or so, and the differences between the classic burlesque show and what currently passes for burlesque on the Las Vegas Strip. Please enjoy my conversation with Dustin Wax of the Burlesque Hall of Fame Museum. First of all, Dustin, I just want to say thank you for uh, for taking the time to uh, to sit and chat with me today. I really do appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here. So uh, I'd like to start just a little bit by talking about the the history of the Burlesque Hall of Fame, if if we can. Um, where was the where did it where was it conceived? Where did the idea come from? Who created it? Just uh, some of the background on uh, on the Burlesque Hall of Fame. Sure. So. Uh, the idea comes from uh, our founder, Jenny Lee. Jenny Lee was an uh, uh, exotic dancer in the 1950s. And in the mid-50s, uh, she was working out in L.A. Uh, and conditions for strippers in L.A. weren't that good. 
So she organized the Exotic Dancers League. Uh, they were all members of the American Guild of Variety Artists, but they weren't really doing anything for uh, to help exotic dancers. So she starts the Exotic Dancers League as sort of a section of that to kind of agitate for them to help them, but also to, to agitate for uh, conditions to be improved in, in local clubs, uh, to get better pay, uh, to get stuff like heaters in their dressing rooms, private dressing rooms, stuff like that. Um, and they were pretty successful in LA. So they have an annual meeting for the, for the union. Um, but the annual meeting is leaning more and more towards a social event. So they start a softball team. They start a bowling team. Um, they go to shows, um, as well as doing just the normal, whatever, you know, agenda items they have to, to deal with that year. Um, and there's a lot of sort of publicity based into this sort of, um, they, they issue a, a resolution, uh, that exotic dance should be taught to American housewives so that they can better serve their husbands and, and have better marriages. Um, you know, which is clearly a kind of publicity stunt more than, uh, a, a formal sort of, uh, thing that they're going to be, uh, doing activism for, um, so anyway, in the 60s, uh, to the annual meeting, they send the invitation out and they say, hey, bring your photos and let's start a burlesque hall of fame. And people start bringing their photos. And uh, she has a bar called the Sassy Lassie uh, in San Pedro. Uh, and they start putting up these photos in the, in the bar and people start bringing costume pieces and putting them up on the wall. And pretty soon she has a pretty nice big collection. And so when did it become an official hall of fame per se and then of course when did the move to to las vegas happen so she's shown in her bar uh, until the early 80s she gets diagnosed with breast cancer and has to leave la they buy a goat ranch out in the middle of nowhere in hollandale california and move the collection out there to start uh it has many, many different names. Uh, sometimes it's the Burlesque Hall of Fame. Sometimes it's the Exotic Dance Hall of Fame. Sometimes it's the Exotic Dance Museum. Sometimes it's Exotic World. Exotic World's the name that sticks. Um, and uh, and she starts this museum and a school and a bunch of uh, performers, retired performers uh, by this point, come out and, and live there for different lengths of time. And uh, that becomes uh, a very important sort of um, site for the for the rise of the neo burlesque, the, the burlesque revival in the nineties. Jenny Lee passes away, and Exotic World uh, is taken over by Dixie Evans, another performer from the fifties, and she runs that until two thousand and five out there in the desert. And she runs this competition, which we still do, the uh, Miss Exotic World competition. Um, it has its thirtieth anniversary next year. And, uh, and that starts bringing people out there to th these new people that, you know, that have learned about burlesque from books and old magazines and movies. And maybe they don't even know it's burlesque yet. They just started doing some kind of artistic thing where they take their clothes off and they hear about it. And they start going out there for these events to meet the, the former generations and, and so on. So it becomes a really important link between the classic burlesque era and the new burlesque era. Um, and then in 2005, there's a storm and the roof caves in. And it is an old goat ranch on the edge of being condemned the entire time they're there. Uh, and it's not, they don't have the resources to fix it. And so they move the collection out here to Las Vegas at first thinking they're going to store it out here um, in a dry place until they can fix the, the fix the old place up. But like I said, that 
doesn't become possible. So in 2010, we opened a tiny little space on, on Fremont Street, uh, 200, about 225 square feet, this tiny little closet of a space. Um, and the idea was that we would sort of have a little tease of what we have while we were building towards opening the new museums. And we opened the, the museum that we're in now on Main Street um, last year, last March. It's still got that new car smell, so to speak, where you are right now. Where we are right now, yeah. It's still very much the new museum. But, you know, parts of our collection are 50 years old, so they also have that old storage smell. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about the history of burlesque sort of in general and where it all sort of started and where it all came from. And, I mean, I guess also, too, wanting to kind of clarify burlesque versus exotic dancing versus stripping are they all within the same vein are they all the same thing are they all very different things because i think maybe there's that stigma surrounding burlesque that it 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 is the same as exotic dancing and stripping i guess maybe they're all different degrees you will know more about this than i do (laughs) right i'll start with just the history and then we get into sort of the the differences as we go so the history of burlesque is old. It's long. Um, burlesque, in its purest sense, is just a theatrical form that's based on parody and exaggeration. So in that sense, it's existed since, as long as theater, since ancient Greeks. The kind of burlesque that we talk about um, uh, gets started in the like mid-19th century as taking sort of well-known plays or well-known stories and writing these kind of ribald um, parodic versions of them. And the big innovation it, when it comes to America is it's mostly led by female theater troops who do the male parts as well as the female parts. So they're cross-dressing in their roles, but they're not cross-dressing to look like men. They're cross-dressing to look like women in men's clothes. Okay. <laughs> um, and so there's this very sort of unsettling nature to it where it's it's very much a kind of way of sort of sticking in the eye of the powers that be to say, you know, these these heroes aren't all that heroic. They're just, you know, after girls and uh, and wealth and greed and whatever. And uh, and and then they're a little like, you know, there's sexually charged because the women are wearing, you know, men's uniforms, but you can see the shape of their legs. You can see the shape of their bodies. This is, you know, the sort of early mid Victorian era where, you know, people are wearing those big poofy skirts and corsets and their whole bodies are sculpted in a way to sort of cover up a lot of it. Um, and you can see their legs. You can see, you know, um, they're, they're, you know, they're wearing low cut, uh, uh, tops so that you can see their chest to some degree. And that combines uh, by the end of the century, by the end of the 19th century with um, belly dancing, the, the hoochie cooch dance, it was called um, that had become popularized at the world's fair in 1893 into this kind of variety show um, theatrical format. That is very similar to vaudeville, although vaudeville is family entertainment and burlesque was decidedly not. So you have comics, you have skits, you have uh, chorus girls, you have dancing. And that is burlesque in the early 1900s. Um, It's the Minsky shows, the Ziegfeld shows, the, you know, 
sort of traveling shows are all built around this sort of variety format. And, and the comics are the big draw. Well, in the late 1920s, uh, radio becomes popular and talking movies become uh, a thing. I guess the movies are already popular, but uh, they were even more popular uh, now. And uh, they needed comics. Both of them needed comics uh, to do shows, to do uh, you know variety hours on the radio, and to do movies. And you know, Abbott and Costello and Bob Hope and all these people leave the burlesque theater for for radio and the movies. And so vaudeville, of course, disappears within like four years. The last vaudeville house is closed, but uh, burlesque has pretty dancing girls and as they go to ever increasing lengths to hold their audiences they develop striptease and that's the real american innovation is is uh the striptease dancing gotcha okay so yeah really it just started as as you say it was it was theater it was parody it was humor but hey let's let's take our clothes off and make it more interesting (laughs) right exactly and a lot of it is still very pointed and very funny they're you know acting out unfaithful husbands or seducing the pool boy or whatever and uh and so there's still an element of humor to it but it's increasingly an eroticized form of of uh, entertainment humor and uh after world war ii you know in the 1950s burlesque starts to shrink it's the expenses i guess there's the economic forces at work where the club owners burlesque moves from theaters into clubs moves from clubs into bars the the people that are uh running this trying to make money off of it uh get rid of the big bands and go down to a combo and eventually down to a drummer and eventually down to recorded music and so you have a kind of gradual transition uh over the course of this 60s and 70s into modern exotic dance into into stripping um so that by the mid 70s you have these you know the girl 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 show and live new girls and there's not much of an act to it there's there's more of a uh people come out instead of stripping on stage they come out with very little on and and remove that um and so it's much more of a focus on the just the nude female body rather than on the theatrical elements of burlesque. And so there's no clear demarcation point, but burlesque, uh, you know, over the course of a, about a decade turns from the older style that we would think of as a sort of glamor focused theatrical form into the modern, uh, nude focused, um, uh, erotic entertainment. Um, so in that sense, they're kind of cousins. Uh, what comes back in the in the 90s when people sort of rediscover burlesque is much more the theatrical elements of it and much less the erotic elements of it, although they're still there, but they become part of a tool of the of the theatrical presentation. And so modern burlesque, neo burlesque, and exotic dance are cousins, maybe. You know, right. they're maybe second cousins. They're they're you know they're they they share a root, but they don't share that. The economics are entirely different, right? Like you can be a exotic dancer and make a living at it. You can own an exotic dance club and make a ton of money. Um, very few burlesque dancers make money dancing on stage and doing their acts. Although a lot of them make a living teaching or uh, doing other related things, um, and 
as far as I know, there's maybe, I mean, a handful of outlets of venues that just focus on burlesque. They're, you know, it's not really a thing that there's a, uh, a lot of places that just specialize in that the way there are strip clubs in every town. Right. And so, I mean, with the, the history of, of burlesque being what it is, as, as you've kind of explained it to me and that it's the, um, the entertainment level of it versus just, Hey, live nude girls. Um, it makes sense that Vegas really picked up on, on burlesque. I mean, really it's, it's a, it's a city where people are after both. So, Hey, why not combine them? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, burlesque is really, if we look at the roots of Las Vegas entertainment, it's Lily St. Cyr coming here in the late forties, early fifties, uh, and performing a sort of traditional style burlesque show at the El Rancho with, a, with a, a comic, usually Joey Lewis. And, uh, I mentioned the Minskys before the Minskys were a, a group of four brothers who all ran shows out in New York. Um, and really shaped modern, you know, Chips Heroes Lee worked for them. Um, all the big dancers in the in the sort of twenties and thirties worked for them, and uh, the son of one of them, uh, Harold Minsky, moves out to Las Vegas in fifty seven. He starts the first topless review at the Dunes, and it's really based around the same model of a Minsky burlesque show. Although a lot of it's choreographed, it's not necessarily the individual artist doing her thing. It's you know uh, a, an act that they hire someone to, to sort of fill. And but the whole root of the modern showgirl show uh, comes out of that. Pretty soon he's running shows at seven different hotels, um, and other people are coming in and doing the same kinds of shows: the Lido to Paris and uh, the um, uh, Jubilee, and all these shows are modeled after that kind of uh, burlesque-inspired show. So yeah, it's really baked in here. And I mean, you talked a little bit about burlesque seeing a a real resurgence in the nineties. Why do you think that is? Where, where do you think that came from? I've seen it in, in, you know, working in radio and working in music and the way people will discover music from the eighties or music from the seventies. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a big resurgence of the Beatles in, in 2010 or whatever. Is, Is it, kind of a situation like that was it people looking specifically for something new what's old is new again why do you think that resurgence happened i think um the biggest thing i see is that in the early 90s you had a whole generation of uh young women who had been raised with feminism right uh and so they were all raised with the idea that you can be whatever you want to be. There's, you shouldn't, you're going to have a career. You shouldn't feel constrained. Uh, there can be women doctors and women politicians and women CEOs and whatever else. And, uh, and yet the society hadn't really changed to catch up with them that much. So they raised with those ideas, but it was still – you know, they were still also told, well, you should probably not weigh more than 110 and you should probably wear a ton of makeup and always be pretty and don't learn a lot of math and whatever else. And so you see a whole bunch of different kinds of ways that women are looking to 
are looking for identities for themselves in the early 90s, right? You have the Rockabilly revival, you have the Roller Derby revival, you have uh, the Riot Girl movement um, in punk rock, you have you know, all these different kinds of uh, just, you know, movements and subcultures emerging that are all, uh, it, it, to some extent, looking backwards um, at, at previous sort of models, but also trying to modernize those and kind of reconcile them. So they're models of being women and being powerful without being 80s feminist women with the shoulder pads and the, you know, the the sort of uh, man-eater stereotype of, of the 80s. Uh, you know, think of like Baby Boom or whatever, where you have these very powerful women that, that are frightening and very masculine. And so they're models of femininity that are also powerful. Um, and... Uh, and and I think that's a, a big part of it is that they're they're sort of trying to play with all these different ideas and all these different ways of being women. And burlesque is one style that's a very hyper exaggerated form of femininity in its heyday. And it's also um, you know more in line with the emerging sort of third wave feminism, sex uh, positive feminism. It's not you know if you think of the seventies feminism, there was you know like the society for cutting up men and uh, and by choice lesbianism and so on, where they were really trying to just get away from the idea of sex as as any part of the identity. And and you know by the nineties, they're really trying to find ways to to integrate sex into part of. Uh, sex and sexuality into part of their uh, personhood. And so I think all those things sort of crystallize for some people around burlesque. Um, burlesque also has this really theatrical element uh, that's very similar to drag where you're just, it's just way over the top. You know, you can put on a giant 12 inch high wig and three inch long eye, uh, eyelashes and, you know, incredible makeup and it's very theatrical. There's glitter and sparkle and whatever. And, and it, it, it creates a, uh, uh, I don't know, like a glam, uh, David Bowie type, you know, way of, of again, playing with gender and playing with your identity and, and creating whole new people out of, or personas out of who you are. Um, and, and this kind of fantasy self, and it's interesting that you you bring in the 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 discussion about feminism and and the feeling of power and in control. Um, I've I've talked to women that have done burlesque, and I have friends that have been involved in burlesque, and they've all said that they've all said you know there's that that sort of myth that oh these poor quote unquote poor girls that are being exploited for this. And they've all said, I don't feel exploited. I feel more powerful than I have ever felt in my life when I'm up there doing that. Right. Because when you're on stage, you're making choices um, and you're choosing how to present yourself and you're choosing what elements to kind of exaggerate and what to downplay. And you're uh, and you're owning all of that. Um, and so there is, you know, I, I don't know. And again, if I go back and I talk to the old older performers that were performing in the 50s, 60s, 70s, they hated feminists, right? Because feminists were out front marching <laughs> to close down their clubs. But if you talk to you know everyone, I don't know anyone in the current scene that isn't to some degree uh, doesn't to some degree consider herself to be a feminist. Even even the you know there's a lot of male performers now. That's a new thing um, in the modern movement. That um, you know they all are they they're sort of very cognizant of being in this sort of feminist space and 
trying to sort of figure out uh, the role of, of men as sort of uh, supporters of this of this ideology. And yeah, everyone feels empowered because we still do live in a society that tells women to be smaller, to take up less space, to lose weight, to be pretty, to be uh, uh, to not have so much ambition, you know, and we've, we've seen it on everywhere from, from the workplace to the national stage, you know, as, uh, women, you know, running for office, for instance, get criticized for things that men, nobody would even think about in relationship to their, their male, uh, counterparts. Well, exactly. Like, like you say, they they'll get criticized for looking a certain way, dressing a certain way, you know, weight or, or appearance, whereas men, no, nobody's caring about that. So yeah, the, as, as you say, it's, it's, I think it's interesting to look at it from, from that side, from the, the empowerment side. And as you say, going back with the, the quote unquote old timers, they felt the same way in a time when it was even perhaps looked at as being uh, women were more repressed at that time and, and we're figuring out a way to, to do that. And this was a way for them to do that. Yeah. And it's why, so the, the modern burlesque movement really holds on to uh, the, the older generations of performers, they call them legends, you know, and, and legends with a capital L Um, and, and they become kind of feminist icons, and like I said, to, maybe to the chagrin of some of them, but they become feminist icons because they were they were marginalized uh, people, uh, often from very poor backgrounds, who made a life and a career for themselves that was uh, that was frowned upon in the general society, but they were being paid a lot of money to do it, uh, and. Uh, and they created personas that were not afraid to be sexual, not afraid to be uh, to to express that side of their womanhood at a time when no one was, you know, women weren't supposed to express that side of their womanhood, right? The women were supposed to be uh, June Cleaver with their, you know, vacuum cleaners and and just uh, having dinner hot on the table when when their man came home, and. Uh, and so today's burlesque performers look at those older performers as women who had this incredible strength and this incredible determination to live lives that they wanted to live rather than the lives that were imposed on them. Uh, and uh, so they, you know, we bring, like I said, we still do this competition every summer. We do a whole big four day festival every summer uh, around it. And we bring, as many of them as we can. So last year we brought, I think, 46 uh, legends, performers from everywhere from the 1940s up to the mid-70s to come. Some of them perform, some of them teach classes, but all of them come. Uh, we pay for their travel, we pay for their tickets, and we could just, because we want them to be there to uh, to be available for the new generation to learn from. I think that's so cool. That's such that's such an amazing idea and an amazing concept. And I would imagine that the the legends when they come back, they they must just absolutely love coming back and and speaking to that new generation of burlesque performers and and people that want to be involved in that that realm of of entertainment. Yeah, I mean there there's a whole kind of and, and again this is sort of similar to the drag community there's this whole kind of burlesque mama um 
relationship where people are like, you know, this so-and-so is my burlesque mother. And, and those older performers will say, oh, yeah, these are my burlesque daughters, you know, these four or whatever, that they have that almost like mentorship uh, relationship, uh, which is important because even today in burlesque, a lot of uh, the women in the burlesque community uh, don't have strong relationships with their families. Uh, a lot of them are doing something that their families you know, dislike because they're either religiously, uh, uh, you know, religious fundamentals or whatever, or because they just see it as, well, it's stripping and no daughter of mine would ever be a stripper. Um, and, uh, so a lot of them, you know, I don't know whether the chicken comes for the egg, but either they, they don't have a relationship with their family because of what they do, or they do what they do because they don't have a very good relationship with their family. Right. Um, and so building these relationships with these older performers is really important for, for a lot of people in, in the modern burlesque community. There's uh, several burlesque shows and, and various types of shows that are in Las Vegas and on the strip and, and off the strip and elsewhere. How do you think they stack up compared to the classics? Uh, are they are they even in the same ballpark, in the same league? Are they something different? Are they are they respected within the burlesque community? I don't know if respected is the right word, but, but what are, what are your thoughts on some of the modern shows that are out there? I will say, even though burlesque is, is very firmly rooted in Las Vegas entertainment, most of what happens on the strip is not burlesque. Um, and, uh, and the difference is something I already sort of mentioned, which is the shows on the strip tend to be scripted choreographed shows. And then they hire people to fill those, roles and so if you know some dancer twists her ankle one night they can hire someone else to put into that same role whereas you know the tempest storm was always tempest storm you know she did her acts and no one could step in and sort of do her acts for her um and uh and a lot of that is down to this sort of uh commercial nature of the strip and you know everyone kind of complains that you know oh well when the mob ran things you know it's a lot more personable and whatever and to some extent that's true and at least where the shows are are concerned that everything's run by i think it's four corporations now that run almost every hotel on the strip right and and they're very focused on just like hollywood you know like this is what will sell to the largest number of people we don't want to challenge anyone we don't want to make people think oogie thoughts you know we just want people to come in see pretty girls do pretty girl stuff and uh and be mildly titillated and and then go out and gamble some more go to the restaurant spend 300 dollars on dinner so what you end up with is what the best of them i call burlesque adjacent um something like absinthe um or uh, uh what's their show atomic lounge which is run by the same uh company mm-hmm. um these are burlesque style shows. They have, you know, comics uh, acting as MCs. There's a lot of humor. They're, they're variety shows. You have the dancing girls. You even have, in absence, you know, some traditional burlesque acts like the the you know big balloon you know woman dancer with a big balloon act, uh, which was originated by Sally Ram back in the 30s. But uh, there's no striptease. Uh, no one removes a piece of clothing on stage. And, um, you know, there's no, like I said, the, the parts are sort of, uh, 
the the parts are written out and then people are step into them. So you look at something like Absinthe and there have been three green fairies and <laughs> three different gazillionaires, which is the MC. And so there's there's uh, there's much less of a personal expression aspect or element to it. Um, that said, there there's great shows. I mean, Absinthe is a phenomenal show. Mm-hmm. Um I recently saw Opium, which is another uh, Spiegel tent show, uh, also a phenomenal show. Uh, some of the shows that have had burlesque in their titles have failed really badly, and been uh, I even you know like I never saw X burlesque, but I never heard any good things about it either. So um, uh, one of the shows that still runs that does do strip teases is uh, Zombie Burlesque, and I still haven't seen that one, but. Uh, my sense is again, it's it's mostly scripted, and they just hire actresses to do the different um, choreographed parts. Um, those are all fine, you know. Las Vegas is changing, and the kind of shows that people see, you know, Cirque has radically changed what people are willing to to sit through. And now almost every show on the strip is a Cirque show, right? And they're these big spectaculars, and they're more acrobatics than necessarily dance. And, you know, that's fine. It's just a different kind of show. Um, but what we bring when we do our competition is I find it to be way more entertaining. And, uh, and I think a lot of it is because it is an individual person's expression rather than uh, something that's been, you know, written by, you know, the some corporations uh team of uh producers and and whatever else um and choreographers and directors and whatnot and uh i i love to see you know these individual people expressing themselves and and saying something that only they could say um and so the kind of show that we do here is is i feel uh it's just a totally different league um you asked a, another question, which I, I'm not sure you meant to ask, but how how today's burlesque sort of compares to the the old days. We've been doing a, a series of uh, film screenings here at the museum where we're showing some of the old 50s B movies, these burlesque movies, and and these are really, I mean, they would film a bunch of acts and then they'd slice them together in 20 different ways to make 20 different movies out of them. Um, they're they're poorly acted. They're they're poorly filmed um they're they're all you know super cheap fly by night kind of uh films and while i'm sure that some of these performers who were quite famous um maybe had more energy when they were in front of a live audience uh watching them on film there's not that much to it at all Mm -hmm. and and when I look at some of the things that people do today where they've integrated circus into it, for instance, people do, uh, um, you know, acts on, you know, hoops hung from the ceiling or streamers hung from the ceiling, um, or they're, they're doing, uh, uh contortionism. Uh, so that's one element where people have integrated hip hop dance and, uh, and break dancing and, you know, all kinds of sort of modern club dance styles into, into their performance. It's, it's, it's an incredibly, it's almost, a, I mean, uh, uh, it's basically a different form of a performance, but there's, there's a lot more show personship to it today. And I think a lot of it is just that it was so novel in 1950 to see someone take their 
clothes off on stage <laughs> that people were like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm into in for this. Um, whereas nowadays, you, you know, you can see anything in the world you want to on the internet, right? You just right. Google a search term and you can see any sex act you've ever imagined or that you couldn't even imagine. And, and so burlesque doesn't, even have to try to like fill that niche so it's all about the dance and it's all about the the story that's being told and it's all about the humor and it's all about all these things that in 1952 you know you it was you know the primary draw was that there was going to be some sexual element to it that you couldn't see anywhere else well and i feel too like the <clears throat> you mentioned the the individual expression and the individual connection that that person that's up there performing, as you say, that is them as opposed to these these large groups, like you say, like the Experlesque or, or an Absinthe or any of those shows being that they might be great shows. They're they're very cookie cutter. They're very somewhat generic, whereas that person that gets up on the stage and and performs a burlesque show for a live audience they are that's that's all them that's 100% them that's their individual expression and you also too the fun of getting up in front of a live audience like that is you never really know what the audience is going to bring to the show so there might be that level of interaction between the performer and the audience as well right yeah i mean the best performers are always the ones that sort of seem locked in on their audience the whole time and the audience is a big part of it. You know, when you go to any burlesque show and um, you're very likely to have an MC come out at the beginning of the show and say, how many of you have been to burlesque show before? For those of you who haven't been here before, you know, here's, here's how it works. Like when you see something you like, you should scream and, you know, clap your hands and yell and let them know. And that energy of people wooing and, and, you know, uh, being part of it really is is part of that experience, and of course, it's much more obvious in the kinds of small venues that most local shows take place in, where there are no big burlesque theaters anymore. So they go to bars um, or you know sometimes commercial spaces for commercial shows, and uh, and perform in front of maybe a hundred people, maybe, uh, maybe 200 at the top. Uh, but mostly in, in that very sort of informal environment where they're very close to their audience. Um, and again, you go to a Las Vegas show and you're in a big showroom and everything's just so, and they're, you're on, they're on a stage that's, you know, sort of separated from probably for good reason, <laughs> um, separated from the audience. Um, and you know, there's not, there's just not, they, they're not even designed with the idea that there is going to be any kind of interaction with the audience. You maybe have a comic that comes out and, and works the room a little bit, but other than that, for the dancers, that's not part of what, that's not part of the root thing that they're trying to accomplish. So I do want to talk about the, the hall of fame specifically as well. Um, so what are, th how does one get inducted into the burlesque hall of fame how does that happen so we don't induct people um and it's an unfortunate trick of our name that, <laughs> that you know hall people think of the rock and roll hall of fame the baseball hall of fame they induct people um in our case it's uh a name that 
you know, Jenny came up with back in 1965 as just like, you know, on the spur of the moment, let's start a burlesque hall of fame. And uh, when Exotic World closed, they wanted a new name that would, you know, represent that, the, the change from what that experience was to whatever the new experience was going to be. And they, they went back to this name Burlesque Hall of Fame. We, we, what we do is we do um, a, an award every year for the, the Living Legend Award, it's called, um, where we choose a performer from the sort of pre-75 era to recognize for their contribution to the art. Um, and we have a, a committee of people that, that nominates and, and votes on that every year. And we also do an award called the Sassy Lassie, which is more for uh, recognizing people who contribute to the perpetuation of the art, which is, you know, our sort of neo-burlesque award, the people in the 90s and aughts that, um, that sort of stepped forward and, and brought this art into the present. And it's also selected by, there's a nominating committee, and so we have a short list, and then every year we kind of work through the short list. So in a sense, I guess those are our inductees. Um, but what we don't do is, like, if you go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they've inducted, you know, whatever, David Bowie, and there's a case that has, you know, the Thin Duke costume and the guitar he played and whatever. Like, we don't really have, if you come into the Burlesque Hall of Fame Museum, we don't have cases that represent individual performers in the same way, uh, in part because we can't, because stuff got worn until it fell apart. Um, a lot of stuff got destroyed. You know, a lot of people, when they retired from burlesque, it's because they got married and they had a husband that didn't like it or they found religion and they you know and they knew people that burned their stuff or they threw it out um and uh, a lot of people sold their costumes because that was a way they could make you know good money uh when they were still um sort of on the downslope uh high up the downslope from being famous stars um and so there's very few people that we have a sort of representation of that would be similar to the kind of represent, you know, you go baseball hall of fame and there's their costume and their number and the bat that they use and whatever. We don't really have that. Right. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to find any of this stuff because burlesque wasn't considered a central savable part of our culture, right? It was always considered something that was a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little bit dirty, but and it's a little bit, uh, downscale you know it's a little bit lowbrow yeah i was gonna say lowbrow or or um sort of uh kept sort of underground so to speak yeah and it's 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 a little underground it's a little lowbrow it's women and you know until like this week <laughs> our society hasn't really seen women's history as being that important to to preserve it's working women it's erotic women it's it's all these different you know all these different sort of axes that our society has always downplayed um and so this stuff didn't get didn't get preserved you know even the theaters very few of the theaters even exist anymore and they're almost all uh converted into other things 
So what type of items and artifacts then do you guys have in the actual museum? Is it posters? Is it video? Is it, is it some costumes from, from newer performers? Well, so we do have, you know, uh, we have the advantage of having been collecting for over 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of the, some of the stuff in the collection are costumes, uh, that were donated back then. Some of the stuff, um, you know, we get fewer and fewer costumes now, but we still, you know, try to find them when they come up. Of course, the big, big people uh, that were really famous, their costumes uh, tend to be out there. And, you know, people did collect them. Gypsy Rose Lee, for instance. Um, we were able to show one of her costumes uh, last summer. Um, so we have uh, so we have that sort of 50-year uh, collection of costumes and other material and then we're trying to add to it and it gets harder and harder to get costumes but we're able to find you know film we just added uh to something weird uh company collection they collected all these you know they do um dvds of old sort of b movies Mm -hmm. um and they have horror movies and they have uh, those old weird educational movies and whatever. Um, but they collected all these burlesque films and, and converted them to VHS back in the nineties and then to DVD in the aughts. And they donated the, the entire collection of the original film stock to us. So we have that collection. We have thousands of photos, um, just promo photos, mostly, uh, from all these different performers. Um, one of the things we ask is when we find a new legend, and we're going to bring her out for the weekender. Um, we ask them to donate uh, material that shows that they're a feature performer, um, because we do a show, um, and and uh, with all pre nineteen seventy five performers, they have to be featured performers from before nineteen seventy five to be considered for that show. So so we need them. So we basically ask them to show us that they were a feature performer, and usually that's by giving us. Um, ad clippings, um, photos, other material that sort of shows their stature at the time. Um, and so that stuff all goes in the collection. Um, we collect a lot of books. We collect a lot of, um, we have a lot of personal effects, uh, again, that were donated over the years, like, uh, Liz Renee, who was, um, performing in the fifties, um, in sixties, she was one of Mickey Cohen, the gangster's uh, girlfriend. She actually went to, to prison because she refused to testify oh, wow. uh, against him in a big uh, uh, case. So we have her gun cleaning kit, which I feel is a really interesting. Uh, like, of course, Mickey Cohen's girlfriend is going to have a gun. Of and course, she's have a gun cleaning <laughs> kit. So you know, like uh, these interesting sort of insights into people's uh, histories and personalities. Um, and so if you come in the museum, uh, what we have on display mostly are photos and posters. Um, and uh, we have a case with some, some sort of personal effects. Um, we have like Dita Von Teese's martini glass, her first uh, martini glass from her first tour of that act, um, which has become ever more big and elaborate as she's become uh, more and more established. And then uh, we have a kind of a stage area and on that we have set up um, uh, several costumes representing everything from the forties up to, to, 
pretty much the like a decade ago. And do you think there's a lot of stuff out there that just hasn't been discovered yet? Like somebody's grandma somewhere that they didn't know about was a, a burlesque performer and all of a sudden they're cleaning out her house and they find a trunk of her stuff. Like, is, do you think there's, there's some of that stuff out there? I think less and less. A lot of the stuff in our collection came to us exactly that way. There would be a box on the doorstep at Exotic World, and it would have a note saying, you know, I found this in the attic, and I had no idea that my grandmother was a, a exotic dancer, but here's her. I mean, we have amazing, we have like a whole set of um, uh, scrapbooks that a performer did every month. She did a, a different spread, and she would put all the places she was in, and cocktail napkins, and matchbooks, and newspaper stories and the program and whatever whatever sort of represented wherever she was and then turn the patients the next month of you know and we have uh, like four volumes of this so probably covering 10 years and someone found them in an attic and just put them in a box and and sent them off to to hollandale uh so we have a lot of a lot of our collection was like that but as there are fewer and fewer of the performers of the forties, fifties, sixties left. Mm. <laughs> um, I think that's going to happen less and less often. Um, and, uh, we do still get people contacting us. Uh, but more often we've been getting people, uh, who have found stuff in like a store and would we be interested? Of course we use eBay quite a bit. Um, we don't have a ton of money for, uh, for acquisitions, but, um, but you know, we're able to buy photos and sometimes, uh, personal effects, but the costumes I think just aren't out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of an issue for us now because one thing that's really important to us now that wasn't necessarily as important 20 or 30 years ago is, uh, minority performers. Mm-hmm. And of course they were even less likely to be preserved. People didn't, uh, you know the sort of mainstream white audiences didn't 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 appeal to them in the same way they were they were literally exotics you know they were the sort of weird act that you threw into your show to provide something different um and so they didn't very few of them attained the sort of fame of a gypsy rosalie or a sally rand or a lily st cyr um or tempest storm and so uh so their stuff has most likely just disappeared and now we would really like to have that representation. We would really, you know, there was a whole circuit of, um, of black performers, you know, and there were quite important people that came out of Red Fox started in burlesque. Um, LaWanda Page, who played uh, the aunt with him on uh, Sanford and Son, was a burlesque dancer and, and uh, spun fiery tassels and, uh, she was called the fire, the fire goddess of burlesque. Um, and, uh, angel, uh, angel Lee, who was uh, little Richard's longtime partner, um, uh, also, you know, performed burlesque, uh, often with, with his band to his band. Um, and, uh, and it's like almost impossible to find anything about those people. And those were the you know, those were the top of the field. Um, so it's very hard for us to, uh, to build that part of our collection. And of course there was also a huge Asian burlesque world on the West coast, um, that were only 
uh, luckily, some of the performers have lived quite a long time and are still alive mm-hmm. um, and are now able to give us some costumes. But the stuff that really represented the height of that scene in the 40s and early 50s is just gone. Mm-hmm. Um, perusing the website earlier today as well, I came across you guys have the Burlesque Hall of Fame School of Striptease. Mm. How cool is that? <laughs> uh, very cool. <laughs> I love the fact that that people can can book and go in and book a run of classes or come in for just a, a quick little introductory session and really get into the world of burlesque and learn a little bit about it and, and learn a few moves. And, and really, it looks like it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, and it was something that we always had wanted to be part of the museum when we had the space for it. So we have, you know, when, when we designed this space, we made sure we have this sort of studio multi-purpose space that we can use for that. Um, and, uh, we started last summer doing these drop-in classes once a week and you come in and take just all kinds of, you know, we had beginners classes, we had sort of intermediate level classes. Um, and then just right now we're in the middle of, um, our first multi-session class. So we're doing an eight week class that is really um, covering all the bases of getting involved for newcomers. Um, and, and that's been so successful that I think we're going to launch in the new year. We're going to relaunch that class, but we're also going to do an intermediate class and then we'll go back and forth and put the, the one-off classes in between uh, those eight week sessions. Um, and, we're very lucky here in Las Vegas that um, a, although some of those shows that we talked about earlier are not strictly speaking burlesque shows, a lot of them hire burlesque performers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have some really great burlesque performers that, you know, that are, are willing to, to, to work with us and sort of come in and guest teach a class or whatever. Um, And B, a lot of those legends retired out here. Um, and so we have about a dozen uh, performers from 75 and before who, uh, uh, you know, some of them are, are, are really good teachers. And so we're able to get um, some of these performers who worked in, you know, on stage in 1968 to come in and, and teach the sort of classic styles and teach some of the things that aren't really – as big of a part of the modern burlesque. And so people are able to kind of, uh, learn a much broader, uh, path. Um, and again, continue that process of trying to connect the older generations with the new generations. I absolutely love it. I, I, I saw it on the website and I thought I've got to talk about this and I, I got to get you to get that out there because again, it's just such a, a cool idea and, and just seems like it would be so much fun for people to get involved with. Yeah. And what we're doing is, uh, this year we launched a, um, a quarterly show, uh, at a local venue. And, uh, so for the, for the eight week class, we're doing a group act with them that they'll all learn. And then they'll be able to debut on that stage when we do our show, um, at the end of the month. That's so cool. And hopefully we'll be able to do that for each eight week class. We'll sort of time them out so that they'll end at the same time that we have one of our next uh, shows coming up. That's so cool. I just love it. Um, Dustin, if people want to learn about the burlesque hall of fame, you guys, of course are online, you're on social media. Where can uh, people find you? 
Yeah, so uh, burlesquehall.com is our website. It's uh, B-U-R-L-E-S-Q-U-E-H-A-L-L.com. We are um, at The Burlesque Hall on Facebook, and we're at Burlesque Hall on both Twitter and Instagram. And we are lucky enough, like I said, to have thousands of photos and, and uh, of course, be creating more and more photos every year with our events. And so we have a really great Instagram feed. I'm really proud of it because um, we just have tons of great images to share. And, uh, yeah, so they can find out about uh, whatever we're doing from any of those resources. Excellent. Well, Dustin, thank you again for for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to uh, checking out the Burlesque Hall of Fame on an upcoming trip. Great. Thank you. It's been uh, really nice talking with you. Once again, if you want more information on the Burlesque Hall of Fame Museum, visit them online at burleskehall.com and be sure to check out their social media as well. They're on Twitter and Instagram at Burlesque Hall and on Facebook at The Burlesque Hall. And that puts the wraps on yet another episode of the podcast. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show or any other episode for that matter, or you're after suggestions for your next Las Vegas vacation of where to stay, where to eat, what to do or what to see, or maybe you've got ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please reach out to me via Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or you can drop me an email directly at Jeff at WalkerNewMedia.com. As for my next Vegas trip, it's coming up December 15th to 19th for my annual Las Vegas birthday trip. My wife will be joining me on this one, and we've already started planning out our shows, shopping, and eats, and we have plans to spend some quality time with our Vegas family so we can deliver some Canadian treats to them just in time for Christmas. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. Make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Podbean. And don't forget to visit jeffdoesvegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been episode number 46 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. Mm -hmm.